Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell, and today we are opening Hollywood's crypt to review 1999's Warner Brothers animated epic, The Iron Giant. movie yeah so you know we talked about this a little bit for some reason i completely this has left my brain brain space but this is one of your favorite movies yeah it's up there for sure that's wonderful and for context i i had seen this movie i think i even saw it in theaters and then yeah oh yeah because i mean this is exactly the kind of like sci-fi thing that my dad would have been like oh i'm taking him to this even though I was seven. Sure. But I had not seen it since. So much, <sighs> much like when we reviewed My Neighbor Totoro, this is going to be an interesting dynamic between somebody who can quote probably the entire movie if put to <laughs> task and sure. somebody who's who, who remembered the Superman thing. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah, I remember last episode when we were recording and you said Superman and I was like, uh, I really hope you remember that that's like the saddest part of the movie. Oh, I did. And that is why I did it. (laughs) Okay, cool. Well, in case you skipped the movie and in case like Andy, you live under a rock, uh, Iron Giant is the story of, well, honestly, the Iron Giant a uh, big metal man who comes crashing to Earth and the young boy who considers him family so it's you put in your notes that like iron giant is the story of found family and i was like oh this is this makes a lot of sense that this is so important to my childhood (laughs) yeah absolutely but it it very much is not to you know talk about the end of the beginning but this is brad bird's love letter to 1950s sci-fi but it's also his indictment of it and part of that indictment is the complete subversion of the nuclear family and instead Mm -hmm. having a complete and utter thrown together found family of of misfits and it's delightful well and speaking of things we need to talk about at the beginning of this episode And speaking of subversions, so I just want to start right off the bat. The Iron Giant is based on the book by Ted Hughes, The Iron Man. Now, if you ever took an English class or um, minored in English literature or majored in English literature, the name Ted Hughes sounds weirdly familiar and you might tilt your head and say, not that Ted Hughes. Yes, that Ted Hughes. Ted Hughes was the piece of crap husband of Sylvia Plath, who slept with half of the Iowa writers program and absolutely famously cheated on his very deeply depressed wife. And she, not as a result of Ted Hughes' philandering, killed herself. She was already a deeply depressed human. Mm -hmm. But Sylvia Plath stuck her head in an oven and killed herself. 
how these two things relate um, is that Ted Hughes then wrote the Iron Man for his kids to like make them feel better about their dead mom. And, and the plot doesn't doesn't go with this movie at all. <laughs> well, that's where you lose me because because <laughs> you explained the plot for me. Can you explain the plot just as you know as as uh, as much as you remember it for the audience? Sure. Yeah. So the plot is it, it's it's pretty similar. It um, you know, there's an iron giant who comes to Earth, and then it takes a random left turn. So the movie and the book only have like twenty percent similar. Then the iron giant starts pissing off the local farmers, and the local farmers union finds Hogarth and is basically like, "Yo, we know you and this iron giant are friends. Uh, we need to get rid of him." And so Hogarth, like, trips the Iron Giant. He ends up in, like, buried alive. And then randomly smash cut to the Iron Giant fights an alien and wins. And the alien, as part of his, like, he lost the fight, so he has to do a thing, I guess. Uh He has to sing to the world and world peace ensues. And that's the end of the book. Which sounds like what you'd get if a poet wrote a novel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that part, sure. But the part where it's like, hey, hey, I know. I know you're sad. I miss mom, too. Here's what it'll take for world peace. (laughs) Here's a weird diatribe about, like... Some some stuff I saw late on television, but I'm also going to mix my thoughts on the farm labor industry. And <laughs> and, and I, I know, I miss her too. Don't cry. <laughs> like, what the fuck, Ted Hughes? Who pissed <laughs> in your cereal? It's just so, it's so random. So I will say, like, normally we do this towards the end of the show, but I just wanted to get this out of the way. That's fair. And talk about the, you know, talk about the reading wrecks. You can read The Iron Man by Ted Hughes. Or do your girl a solid and read Sylvia Plath's arguably best poetry collection and read Ariel. And you'll have a much better time. Yeah. Or read... I'm not going to put this in the actual reading recommendation, but, you know, read any back of a magazine pulp story from the 1950s or 60s because that's yeah that's what this is that's the overwhelming vibe of iron giant sure yeah no read read boy's life or read mad magazine or read is Atomo a real comic book character oh god i think he is not not in okay. the context of like the movie but i believe there's like one of the original uh like one of the original animes might have been called Atamo. Okay, so read or watch in the case of anime that or read some Superman. Don't 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 give the Ted Hughes Foundation money. Yeah, like, what just the, don't. Whatever you do, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> but fun fact, I will say speaking of the Hughes Foundation, their eldest daughter, uh Sylvia Plath and Ted Hughes's daughter, Frida, um is also a poet, which 
surprises no one. Um, but she also grew up to be a trained bereavement counselor. Which, which fits. Yeah, very, very <laughs> much fits. <laughs> Long story does not have to do with the Iron Giant, but kind of has to do with the Iron Giant. I like putting things in context. I, I think does. I Okay, so so what does this movie have to say about grief? So is now when we want to talk about the really sad thing we both learned? I, I think this is an appropriate enough time. Absolutely. <laughs> you want to go? Yeah. So, you know, I found this out as I was, you know, trolling IMDb and it's like, okay, yeah, I know Brad Bird. Brad Bird, like made this movie and then went on to become like a thing as much of a, a as much of a thing as you can become in Hollywood only doing animated films and it, it's so interesting this is such a great little uh like exploration of of 50s values and it's a love letter to 50 sci-fi and he made it because his sister was killed by her husband due to gun violence what I was not ready for the the tragic, heartbreaking indictment of, you know, firearms. And you hear that the conceit of this movie is what if a gun had a soul and was a pacifist? And you're like, oh, my God, that's what a beautiful idea and notion. There's, there's something so terribly soft and beautiful about that and then you find out why and where that conceit came from and it's like oh brad bird no let me give you a hug yeah there's a scene in the movie that before finding that out has always has always thrown me because i always feel like it could have that story of a soul could have been told in another way there's a scene where Hogarth and the Iron Giant watch a deer get shot by a hunter yeah they never see you never see the hunter you just watch the deer die um, and that scene in the movie has always seemed really outside of the boyish humor of the movie, of the, of the innocence of the setting. And it just, it felt like it took place in another world and it never like really aligned for me thematically. And then when I learned that, I was like, oh, because it's the pivotal point. It needs to not align because that's. That's the highlighted, underlined, bolded, uh, italicized sentence that we need to read in the script is that scene. Well, I guess he decided to... Right, and, and, you know, to your point, it sticks out so much intentionally. It, It juxtaposes the vibe of much of the rest of the movie... And that's the point, so that you remember it. Yeah, for sure. And there's, I mean, because it's set in the mid to late, I think it's set in the late 50s, 1957-ish, because they're talking about Sputnik. Yeah. Um, Like, obviously, there is already a conversation about the A-bomb. There's already a conversation about... um violence and there's a duck and cover scene where they're watching i was about to say they're they're watching the (laughs) the uh the the cartoon version of the turtle 
The cartoon version of the turtle? Sorry, that that's not a complete enough thought to justify interrupting you. Putting a pin in that, I want to ask you about that later. No, but there's, yeah, there's a duck and cover scene. There's um, the fact that Hogarth's dad is pretty visibly absent, and it's implied he died in a war, because the only actuality you get of him is that he's um, pictured in a portrait on Hogarth's dresser and he's in a fighter pilot costume. So like the idea of weaponry is so present in this movie without being overwhelming. Not being overwhelming is interesting because I would argue it's, it's such a core. I agree with you, but at the same time, it's also, it's, it's the core theme of the movie. But no, the 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 most the most interesting thing that stuck out to me is the fact that Hogarth's father is never even addressed. Yeah. To your point, he is only conspicuous for his absence. And do they even reference the fact that he is he's gone, that he's do they ever canonically state that he's dead? Um, I know that's the takeaway. There's only one instance, and it's said by another character, Kent Mansley, who works for the government, (laughs) says, we can make it really hard. We can make it so difficult that it would be irresponsible to leave you in her care. Sure. Okay. So So that is the only point where we see it known that his dad is gone. And that's just one of the most fascinating parts for me, because a Disney movie would have the one somber scene where like they acknowledge it and, and Hogarth and his mom get into a fight and it ends with them hugging and her saying, I miss him too. And I know I just like word for word talked about that scene in Lilo and stitch where it's Nani and Lilo. (laughs) (laughs) And I think it's so much more powerful that they don't like the fact that Annie Hughes comes home from her working a double and instead of like you know crashing in the kitchen when she's like oh it's so hard raising a kid by herself and crying at the kitchen table she opens the kitchen flips on the kitchen light switch sees the tent in the living room and goes oh Hogarth which is so much more telling of just like I am so tired of raising a boy by myself (laughs) True, absolutely. No, um, she is. She's a great mom. She, you know, she's an amazing mom, mm-hmm. by all intents and purposes. There, there are so many really well done characters, and I think like it's a credit to Bird, who this was the first movie he ever wrote. Like, just absolutely knew exactly what he wanted to say with everybody. And and absolutely aced it, mm-hmm. you know, and, and talking about the fact that this is a love letter to 50s sci-fi cinema. The the only thing I could say is there was a template there for him. Mm-hmm. But the fact that he took the template and then flipped it and completely subverted it is what's so brilliant. Yeah. Because, you know, a, a lesser director would have made a 50s uh, uh love letter to 50 cinema and made it a love letter to 50 cinema. 
Kent Mansley, who works for the government, would have been our our Clark Kent hero. And Dean would have been either evil or, if not evil, this utter incompetent, cowardly, dirty, pinko, stoner comic relief, but he's kind of pathetic character. You know, Hogarth probably would have had a father. He also probably would have died. <laughs> Who, Hogarth or the dad? Yes. Oh, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Annie would have been a a a waif who listens to all the strong men in her world and then gets chased by Bella Lugosi in one shot that is nighttime and then another shot which is daytime <laughs> and then the same shot which is nighttime. Don't you dare turn this movie into Plan 9. No, I promise I won't, but like that's the... That's at least the era of filmmaking that we're talking about here, you know? Kent oh, Mansley yeah. would have been nameless dipshit airplane man who regretted being in that movie. That would have been the archetypical role he felt he he filled. And instead, he's this deliciously insane evil villain. Mm-hmm. I don't even know if insane is the word. Entitled, incompetent. That's a fair point. Yeah, he's too much of a douchebag to be insane. Um, Power hungry. He so badly wants to succeed and to be taken seriously. And it's almost in direct conversation with how he treats everyone who he perceives as less than him. Like, there's one scene where he's talking to a farmer, and the farmer says, so what do you think, Mr. Mansley? Are we we seeing something big here? And he says, no, big things come come to big places, and the sooner I get this done, the sooner I can go back to them. And he's so dismissive of everyone, and then at the end, it's really nice to see him be just dismissed. As something incompetent and stupid and silly and not to be paid attention to. You say you say that and I agree with that, but I also think it's very important to like recognize and highlight he nearly single-handedly murders the the uh, American Northeast. Yeah. And True. you know that, that 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 kind of encapsulates the whole thing at the end of it the you know the inciting critical action is a white man goes above his station and from fear screams to launch a nuke on himself because he's too stupid and scared and upset more more than stupid and scared obsessed that he is right and that mm. the iron giant is evil so what you're saying is Kent Mansley, who works for the government, is the poster child for toxic masculinity? 50s toxic masculinity, absolutely. <laughs> hey there, Scout. Kent Mansley, you work for the government. Is this the part where we talk about how it's really weird that apparently you could just take your landlady's son to the diner for milkshakes? <laughs> And just like low key be like, cool, I'm gonna move in with this random person who I met and take her kid out and be like, yeah, let's 
let me bully you and talk to you about Sputnik and try to make you scared. Yeah, because, like, on the one hand, I get, like, back then, it wasn't strange to rent out a room to some rando. It was a way to make money. It was a thing people did. Ah. And I can accept, like, Brad Bird being like, okay, for plot reasons, we need to get Kent and Hogarth together. We can have them in the diner. Sure. But you mix those two things, and it just comes across as so damn. It's the creepiest thing in the movie for me. It's it's worse than when he interrogates the boy. Okay, it's worse than when he quasi emotionally tortures Hogarth. It is at least okay. Fine. <laughs> I was gonna say, and traps him in his home. Yeah. But, you know, at least that time, Hogarth eventually gets the better of him. Well, you know what? In the cafe, he gets the better of him with the use of X-Lax. That's true. He absolutely does. (laughs) One of the many late 90s uses of X-Lax that became movie gold. (laughs) Um... Can I randomly nerd out on you? I know I already have like three times this episode, but can I randomly nerd out on you? You can always randomly nerd out on me. Okay. Um, So can we talk about Sputnik? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So Sputnik's presence in this movie uh, was the reason I wrote a senior capstone about children's literature and the faces of technology. Ooh. So, the main premise being that, like, the way technology is viewed in children's literature massively changes in the late 50s because of the direction that technology took from a place of help and joy. And it was a good thing. You have, like, the little engine that could taking all the toys and treats to good little boys and girls on the other side of the mountain And then, like, the late 50s happen, and all of a sudden, technology is something to desperately be afraid of. Mm Mm-hmm. And it's because technology is watching you. So, speaking of the diner scene, Kent Mansley's... Kent Mansley, who works for the government, his whole monologue about how the Russians are watching... Like, he is absolutely embodying an entire philosophy that so many Americans had of, like, Anything foreign is not to be trusted. And anything new and of a certain level is something we need to be afraid of. That coincides so nicely with this notion that I've always had and this sort of this this just thing I've been chewing on for probably the last 10 years of my life that somewhere around the end of World War II we had this shift in like our leaders and thought pioneers and presidents and the people in charge and responsible sort of losing their way. Mm. And like, there's a hard definitive line where like perception just becomes so many shades of gray that there is no more room for a, a, a good and noble, like the American dream concept. And that's ignoring how broken and fucked up the American 
conceit had been up until that point. <laughs> no, I agree with you. I think so. To just give you a basic, basic, basic concept, the best definition I can think of this. So how familiar are you? And I know this is a wild left turn, but how familiar are you with Roald Dahl? I mean, I very much enjoy his works, but I don't know much more of the man beyond his works. Okay, so Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the first one, was published in 1954, I think. And that one, yes, bad things happen to children in the factory, for sure. But, like, the end of it is very much the good guy wins out. Yeah. Everything good happens, and we're sailing in the Great Glass Elevator, right? The sequel to Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, Charlie and the Great Glass Elevator, was published in 1963. Huh. And in that book, they fly to Charlie's house to pick up the bed and the rest of the buckets. And then they, the Great Glass Elevator goes frickin' haywire, takes Charlie and all the rest of the buckets on a crazed-ass adventure with Willy Wonka, and they end up on the International Space Station where they get attacked by shape-shifting aliens who have a really Russian name. And then the book ends with them landing on the White House lawn and waking up the president and being like, there's shit in the International Space Station that you should maybe see to. Okay. Hell yeah, Roald Dahl. <laughs> well, and it's just like this this whole concept of like foreign fear is so, it's like the concept in this movie of like, there's this one and a one and a one there's this pulsing in the background of like, Yes, we're afraid of things foreign. Yes, we're afraid of guns. Yes, we're afraid of something else. Yes, we're afraid of all these other things floating around above us. But it's also a kid's movie about found family. And it still manages to be delightful and bright and happy and and full of wonder. And I think it's very fair to say that is entirely because of Hogarth, who we haven't really talked about. I love him. He's He's pure. He's pure. He's such a good young boy. Yeah. Like, I think, I I think I read that he's supposed to be like nine or something. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and thinking about, we, we've seen several kids movies and none of them are coming to mind as to having a young boy protagonist. Mm-hmm. Instead, it's been Alice. It's been the girls in Totoro. It's we've, we've seen the young girl wide eyed wonder perspective. We haven't gotten the young boy and Hogarth is maybe one of the best examples you could ever point to. He's this bored, but kind hearted, ingenious little kid who just wants a pet but also is like going to do the little kid thing of taping a flashlight to a bb gun and then going out (laughs) in the woods when he hears a strange noise (laughs) 
Like that is that is visual shorthand for nostalgia. Stranger Things does basically the same concept, um, but it's also so delightful. It's also I remember that was the trailer was just yeah. him like suiting up and running into the woods, and the trailer was something that has like always stuck with me. Oh, why do I? <laughs> why do I feel like you were Hogarth when you were a kid? I mean, because I pretty much was. I mean, <laughs> yes. <laughs> I was maybe a little more supervised. I was a little more um, frightened of watching the scary sci-fi movie in which a, a brain comes to life and eats someone. But I was absolutely like the kind of kid who would run out into the woods with a stick and like, okay, we're exploring quote unquote. Yeah. 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 You, you point it so well when you say it's like shorthand for nostalgia, there's all these things. It's like Bigfoot searching diners. He has like a TV dinner and he's shooting more whipped cream into a Twinkie, which gross. <laughs> there's all these things that when you see them, it's like, hi, I am 1956 wrapped in a blanket. Yes. And also I am childhood wrapped in a blanket. Like that, that <laughs> reminds me of the time, the, the one time I was left alone for some reason I can't remember. I was uh -huh. like, eight and i think my parents were like ah he's eight i'm sure he'll be fine <laughs> and i tried to make myself leftover rice aroni oh. but i'd never used a microwave before so i put it in for eight minutes oh honey <laughs> no friend I'm, that's not what you do that's not what you do <laughs> <laughs> I never like I never found a pet and was like oh my god can I bring it home because my house was always full of animals anyway but like mm -hmm. the idea of you know what it is because the, the Iron Giant isn't a pet he's a pet for maybe yeah. like five seconds but then he becomes a friend it is very much that thing of like I'm a pure boy I don't know the concept of hate you're a thing you're not hurting me you're not scaring me. I think I understand you. Oh, I'm going to try to empathize with you. Oh, I'm going to try to teach you. Oh, you learned a thing. Well, you're my friend now. I'm going to teach you everything. <laughs> well, and it's because Hogarth doesn't have any friends. He has a whole monologue about it where he's just like shouting at Dean about how if everyone else did the stupid homework, they could move up a grade and get pummeled too because he doesn't have any friends. Oh, Hogarth. Which, I know, I know. He's so good. So instead, he makes friends with the town scrap metal dude and the iron giant who fell to earth because he doesn't have any other friends. And there, I mean, that is just such, that's, that's the easy mode for creating a a sympathetic underdog character and then force him to try and like okay i've got to keep it a secret otherwise kent mansley who works from the government is gonna like shut this shit down <laughs> oh no its hand is in the bathroom oh god <laughs> <laughs> um hogarth's prayer is possibly one of my favorite moments in all of cinema 
Oh, God. <laughs> we thank you. <laughs> it is and very stop good. the devil. It is very good. It is very... Hogarth is full of good moments. But so is Dean. <laughs> and I love Oh, my this. God. Dean was one of my very original crushes as a small girl. <laughs> Which, Which uh, explains a lot, knowing your husband. <laughs> points directly to husband. Uh, yeah. Down to the down to the soul patch. I'm gonna have some coffee. What do you want? Some uh, milk or uh, what? Milk? Indeed. And, and Dean being... Like, Dean is just chill. Yeah. Like, that's the biggest thing, is he's a cool enough guy that when a little kid gets a squirrel stuck up his pants, he doesn't freak the fuck out. Mm. And instead he tries to play it off as best as possible. Apologizes to the diner about how things are going to get weird. <laughs> uh, which, okay... Watching that again as a grown adult, because I haven't watched it in a couple of years, his pants are really tight. Sure. <laughs> no, 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 no. Follow me here. Follow my logic. His pants are really tight. No, I, I follow your logic. Okay. The squirrel my logic isn't being... the only thing. <laughs> no, you're not following my logic. He's not wearing underwear is what I'm saying. His pants are too tight for him to be wearing underwear. So he apologizes for things getting weird because he unzips. Ain't nothing there. I Okay, you know what? Thank you for leading me to water there. <laughs> always, friend. I will always lead you to water. And I love it. The, the thing I realized, and you, you know, I watched this as a kid, so this was meant to go over my head. Dean is fucking blazed the entire movie. <laughs> yep. Like, he truly is just the weirdo who runs a junkyard and, and makes scrap metal and is also just completely smoking out the forest. Like... Yep. Every, all day, every day. And it is so delightful to watch him interact with Hogarth and the Iron Giant and just in the back of your head know that he is like, he can taste colors right now. He is that <laughs> high. And then the second he stops, he like manifests a, a motorcycle and becomes a badass responsible hero. Uh, he's so hot. So here, so here's the thing. Hear me out on this. Okay. We have a movie in which yesteryear's stoner beatnik no do-gooders are are male protagonist heroes. Sure. And we have a a movie in which the core conceit is that gun violence is wrong. And I bet if a gun had a soul, it wouldn't want to be shooting. We have a movie in which the government authority is the primary antagonist, but the even greater government authority is actually like really chill and maybe one of the best generals we've ever seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah. The Iron Giant is a movie that only could have been made during the Clinton administration. Splain. 
in every way, like this, this was written and conceived of and, and drawn and animated and directed and, and produced smack dab in the middle of the Clinton years. And that was, you know, nestled between the two Bush administrations, which means it was nestled directly between the uh, first Gulf War and the Iraq War. Sure. We have we have a Democrat in office who is admittedly so chill. There was absolutely no way he wasn't high as hell. And Clinton, being an American president, means he committed war crimes of some way, shape, or form. The man is not blameless, but he's certainly a lot more, like, chill and, like, anti-right-wing conservative values than any president we've had since. And I'm including Obama in that. Mm Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that, like, spits in the face of yesteryear's 50s conservative values. And is like, here's all the good things about it, which is fun, high-tech art deco. And, like, kids could be ingenious because they were bored and make friends and there's wonder. But also, we're going to point out all the shitty things we hate, which is like everything else about toxic masculine society. <laughs> yeah, for sure. There is like a devaluing of older people or people who make their money in alternate ways. Like there's a fisherman who totally gets flagrantly mocked at the local diner because he sounds crazy. There's a devaluing of a lot of you know, most women in the movie are basically shishished. Only one of them gets more than like a couple lines. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, maybe this isn't like a, a world brain back of your head kind of take, but like I sit here and I'm like, Brad Bird would have been too young to make this during the George H.W. Bush years. Brad Bird would have been probably too angry to make this during the George W. Bush years. No, that's when he made uh, Incredibles. That's when he made The Incredibles and made the best Fantastic Four movie of all time. Yes, indeed. (laughs) Which... I know we're never going to talk about The Incredibles on this show, even though I have absolutely texted you my thoughts about Incredibles multiple (laughs) times in our friendship. Um, We're never going to talk about The Incredibles, so might as well talk about it now. That movie can be held directly in conversation with this movie, which is fascinating. Yeah. I'm here for it because, like... Brad Bird, just especially early in his career, knew exactly what he wanted to do. And what he wanted to do was to take values and concepts that, like, maybe his dad or maybe his, like, maybe himself. I mean, the guy seems a little too young for this, but... You know, something that, like, way back when we used to love, but then also, like, 
play it out logically and subvert expectations. And it's just always been a hit whenever he does that. Yeah, he always comes with a capital T thesis for his movies. Yeah. So, yeah, I I just always really respect his work. And the writing is beautiful. And this movie is so goddamn pretty. The movie is incredibly pretty. And, like, I actually kind of got a little bit of nerdy glee out of this. Like, I, I so this movie is kind of like right there with Anastasia in that everybody kind of half remembers it being a Disney movie and it's super mm-hmm. not it's mm-hmm. Warner brothers mm-hmm. and Warner brothers home animation is such a fascinating little chunk of like animated filmdom for me because we're talking space jam page master which, by the way, I was too busy watching Pagemaster until I wore out the VHS to be watching Iron Giant. Not a, uh, not a defense, see, but... <laughs> I have only seen Pagemaster twice in my lifetime, so this lines up perfectly. Yes, I can't wait to have this exact opposite conversation at some point. <laughs> yes. But yes we're, we're... Is, is Pagemaster on our list? Pagemaster's on the list. Pagemaster kicks ass. It's a movie <laughs> about books. <laughs> I I will watch it. I remember nothing about it. Oh, it's delightful. You'll love it. Uh, okay. But we're talking Page Master, Cats Don't Dance, Quest for Camelot. All these movies that are very much like niche, debatably gems, debatably like actually really kind of bad. And then you have this guy who worked on The Simpsons and King of the Hill and The Critic and like just sort of dabbled in this um, animated adult comedy world and comes out of nowhere and creates this incredible, amazing movie. This movie so good that Warner Brothers' chief competitor, Disney, immediately is like, oh, this guy is so good, we need him. We need him, Mm -hmm. we're buying him, he's ours now. In 15 years, he's going to be like our senior... Uh, film producer executive guy (laughs) (laughs) but to the point about this being so pretty part of the reason Warner Brothers took Brad Bird's script and idea is they wanted like it is the stated goal of the film that they wanted to animate something better than Disney animators and it's not often that Warner Brothers is going to be the underdog but in this case they (laughs) absolutely were (laughs) Sure. And I think they succeeded. Yeah. I love the balls on that. Like, we're going to make this movie just to prove that we can. We're going to make this movie to show everybody we can do the thing better than you. Mm-hmm. And there is really something to that. And I, I would argue that they succeeded. This is a gorgeously animated film. I was sitting here in the opening scene in the middle of the rainstorm being like, you know what? That rain is really nicely drawn. <laughs> like, palpably. I adore. Um, you ridiculous man. You're like, the rain is drawn well. Meanwhile, I'm like, oh yes, the allegories about Sputnik. We're such nerds. We should make a podcast. Oh wait. It's worked out pretty well so far. 
(laughs) (laughs) Now, to that point, like, the giant himself was completely computer animated, which I didn't realize until reading that. Like, even, even today, like... There's a trend in modern day anime, especially a lot of Netflix produced anime, where it's become cheaper just to CGI animate some character models and then slap a 2D face on it. Mm-hmm. And I've never seen it look right. I've never seen it look good. It is always so jarring that I can't even watch the show. Mm-hmm. And so in 1999, to basically do the same thing, but do it well and successfully and integrate a 3d asset into a 2d plane it deserves commendation it is important and spectacular yeah this goes really into our oscars if you don't mind segueing not at all i have to give this the oscar for best animation i truly have to i know we normally give like cheeky, very unique Oscars, but I genuinely have to give this the Oscar for best animation. That's fine. Cause you know, the thing is like the, the idea is that every movie deserves an Oscar and yeah, normally, normally we watch a tire fire and you know, we, we have to <laughs> scrape the bottom of the barrel to find something Oscar worthy. And this is one of those cases. This is a very well done, incredible movie. And won a ton of minor film awards. I don't think uh, it was actually up for any Oscars, but it, it certainly deserves to have been. And I I think that is perfectly acceptable and good for you to give it that. Um, but so I just want to make absolutely clear, this is better than any Studio Ghibli film. Okay, but, like, why do you have to, like, <laughs> scream at me and call me by my whole name? No, I the animation style is completely different. That's fair. That's a very fair point. So, I don't know. I wasn't saying best animation on our whole list. Maybe, like, best animation 1999. Hop off my dick, Andy. <laughs> you know what? I... I... I apologize. I I came for you with no warning there. <laughs> Rude. I you know that's fi- that 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 actually is fair though. You know, this is a beautifully animated film. Certainly one of the best animated films of um of the year. And and to your point, the only other animated film we've seen that didn't come from Japan was Yellow Submarine. <laughs> and over my dead body am i giving that best animation that's fair so i'm here for best animation for iron giant (laughs) thank you what is your oscar friend my oscar we we discussed about it a little bit but it really is the best opening offering from a freshman director you know, there we we've watched some really exceptional directors, and we've seen some of their first films. You know, we watched uh, Pusher, which was the first film by Nicholas Winding Refn. Um, we've seen the opening films from. Uh, just trying to pull any other damn name here. Peter Jackson, although you know, debatably mm-hmm. was debatably was that good. <laughs> <laughs> 
Brad Bird is probably as big a name as you will find in the animated world. And when you actually look at his career, it is so fascinating because he really did going from being a consultant on a couple of episodes of King of the Hill. He worked for uh, a good long time on The Simpsons and then just completely broke out and was like, I'm going to make a film. I'm going to make a film that is completely different from my career up until this point and have something that is heart and has a message and has a capital T thesis. And The Iron Giant is cult, but it was also so good that Disney was like, this isn't even our guy and that's a problem. We need him now. He belongs to us. We are we are going to make him like our chief dude. This movie was so good and we believe in it so much. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It was cult. Like it bombed financially, which was so sad to find out because I always just assumed it did fine. And so I was doing research and I was like, oh, this made no money. Yeah. You know, you, you figure maybe it, it was helped and saved by home video, maybe a little bit. But like, yeah, that's that's the thing. Any animated film that is not Disney is probably yeah. going to be cult to at least somebody. And Iron Giant absolutely yeah. compares. It was a 70, uh, either 70,000 or 70 million. I got it right here. Hold on. Pretty, pretty different numbers there. Friend. Indeed. It was a $70 million project. It was a, a pioneering film in the field of digital animation, which is probably why it was so expensive. Sure. It had an opening weekend of 6 million and a worldwide gross of 23, which is little, just barely over a third of the budget. Uh huh. I mean, there's a reason yeah. Warner Brothers, like, just started making Batman cartoons and, like, really kind of stepped out of the animation game. Um, there's also, to their benefit, they're Warner Brothers. And if any company can fail, or not fail, but at least underperform again and again and again, it's that one. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, Andy. No, Iron Giant's cult because it, despite it being a bomb... Despite it uh-huh. not actually being a Disney movie, I think if you talked to just about anybody in our age range, they would be like, oh my God, I remember Iron Giant. Half of them would be like, yeah. oh my God, I loved Iron Giant. Case in point, <laughs> Hi Henlo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this movie had so much heart. Yeah. And so much joy and wonder and is absolutely something to look back on fondly and watch 20 times and and really love and is absolutely cult. 100%. But can we connect it to Kevin Bacon? (laughs) Actually, pretty damn easily. Yes, we can. So I, I noticed we went about it different ways. 
Would you like to go first? Well, I'll let you do the honors, and and I'll explain why afterwards. (laughs) Since I have the honor of going first, of course I had to go with the beautiful, the wonderful, the very fucking skilled that we didn't even talk about her enough, Jennifer Aniston, as the amazing Annie Hughes, was also in Picture Perfect with Kevin Bacon. So you got it in one. Uh-huh. And, and to your point real quick, yes, she was amazing. We talked about her character. We didn't talk about her. Height of her powers, season five friends, Jennifer Aniston. Absolutely. I, yes. I, I propose to you that no one ever saw the movie Picture Perfect. <laughs> What? Why are you being mean? That, that doesn't mean it doesn't count, and you beat me. And that that pointing that out is the only thing I can do as revenge, um, because I got it in two. But I have absolutely seen Picture Perfect. Have you? Yes. Okay, I take it all back. What? Why? Why? Why you gotta be a dick? <laughs> Because I saw mine and I was happy with mine and then I saw yours and I was jealous. (laughs) Well, that makes sense. You are normally a dick when you're jealous. So please continue. (laughs) So I um, went ahead and did this a different way. You know who else we didn't talk about was the wonderful Vin Diesel voicing, voicing the giant setting the stage okay. for him to spend like a week in a voiceover booth record like less than a hundred lines and then rake in all the accolades for it the other movie he famously has done that for is guardians of the galaxy playing groot i'm good and in guardians of the galaxy there's also a cameo appearance by john c Riley, and john c Riley was in the river wild with Kevin Bacon. Aw, good job, bud. Thanks. Tastes like losing. <laughs> I mean, whoever has seen Guardians of the Galaxy, really, I'm pretty sure no one has ever seen I it. love that you went for that and not The River Wild, which is a whitewater rafting adventure movie <laughs> that I absolutely saw, but I guarantee not many other people have. I like the cockiness with which you said, well, no one's ever seen Pitch Perfect or Picture Perfect when it was like a pretty regular movie that me and my like junior high best friend would watch because we were obsessed with rom-coms. That's fair. And I shouldn't speak out of turn. I, I didn't know practical magic existed until you showed it to me. So it's almost like. There are other movies beyond your experience. Oh no, I feel very much like a white man right now. (laughs) Oh no, you are a white man. Oh God, okay. Well, the only thing that can save me is my beloved crypt and the hope that um, it picks out a movie that... Is so distractingly amazing to us that it resets the tone of this moment. 
<laughs> You're fine. But yes, let's see what the crypt has for us. Fantastic. Hopefully it's not Anaconda. Hopefully it's not Anaconda. I'll be sad. Um, on Cult Fiction, we put our hands in fate and a random number generator every time. And um, we have 295 movies to choose from. And the crypt is picking out from us number 132 and number 132 (laughs) is a different movie indeed 132 is martin mcdonough and if you're a theater nerd yes that martin mcdonough martin mcdonough's 2008 dramedy in bruges This is a movie that you will either adore or call me up immediately after watching and be like, Andy, what the fuck was that? This is a very fun movie, in my opinion. Well, it has Brendan Gleeson, so... Yeah. All right, you can stream it on... Uh, hold on. Was on Netflix at Once Upon a Time. Apparently it is on Peacock for free. (laughs) Good for you, Peacock. Gotta have something. Um, And... Go ahead. It's also on YouTube, Google Play, iTunes, Apple TV, and Vudu. Yeah. Okay. Well... That's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. If you want to keep up, you can follow along on Twitter at Cult Fiction Cast. You can also follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time when we find out exactly who is an inanimate fucking object as we watch the wonderful and hilarious and poignant and bizarre in Bruges. For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Bowell. Well, 